Ryan, my man, welcome back. How you doing? Doing awesome. Thanks for having me back again. Yeah, it's, it's been too long, I think. And it's funny because I was like um, thinking about what we would talk about. And I just it was just like, uh, oh, we'll have Brian on and we'll talk about like what what both of us are like into these days, like or like what's going on and what, you know, what's transpired and what studies have come out. And so that's basically I sent you some notes and I'm like, I just want to hear about like what you're hot on right now, what you what you're thinking about, what you're feeling on uh, some of the, the latest gossip, not like gossip in terms of like social gossip, <laughs> but like, you know, intellectual gossip on you know, just like whatever, what the industry is, just what what random pendulum swing we're on these days, you know? Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, not a whole, I mean, a, a whole lot. Yeah. But when I looked at your topic list, uh, part of the things you wanted to discuss were cardio and some of my new training. And so when you uh, when we talk about like, what are life updates? Those are usually the two things that that come to mind first. But Let's I guess uh, going yeah, I mean, well, going back a little bit, like, I don't think we've actually chatted on air since I finished my race. And then I know you just finished your race. So um, if we go back to October 7th, that's when I did mine. And um, my body weight was at basically an all-time low, albeit for one small uh, physique show I did in 2015. But basically, on the, the time of the race... My body weight hit an all-time low for basically the last 15 plus years, aside from that one thing. And I was about 180 pounds flat. And uh, since then, I've just been kind of moving back up. So I got back into the mid-190s and more or less been holding that, which feels amazing. I I, I, always, I talked about it on my podcast, but it's every time I diet, or in this case, did cardio, which essentially accomplished the same thing as a diet, which was losing body weight. I always have this sense that everything's okay. I'm fine, you know? And then you're in the gym and you think you're okay. And you're like, yeah, I'm really like, I'm managing, I'm maintaining strength. And then you start gaining weight back again. And, you know, you start dialing back the cardio or increasing the food, whatever it ends up being. And you just feel so strong and powerful in the gym. And you realize in retrospect, how brittle you actually were a month or two prior. And I always just find that such an, interesting revelation because we all tend to do this. And I hear this on other people's podcasts and other people's writing and everyone at the bottom of their deficit thinks they're okay for the most part. And they don't really realize that they're not okay until they, they come out of it. So um, how have you felt, you know, about your situation in that regard? Yeah, I think it actually is a good talking point to, to, to uh, we, we talked about this. I don't know where we were talking about this of, um, where were we talking about this? Oh, maybe when we had dinner, um, this idea of like, we actually both, have had different, uh, I think if, if you look at this idea of like not being able to outwork a bad diet, air quotes, or like how people respond to increasing cardio quite a bit. I'm talking, I'm not talking about like getting a couple more steps. Like I'm talking about the addition of like an amount of cardio where you're really working on performance. We see across populations, people you work with and in the research that there's a real difference in how people respond hunger wise. Um, and th that also comes down to what the people are doing. But I think even if you just took every individual type of intervention cardio wise, you'd see an individual difference in response in terms of how hungry people get in response to that. And does that hunger lead to eating that nets out to people lose weight when they start doing a lot more cardio? Or do they get a lot hungrier such that they end up overeating the calories that they're, the additional calories that they're burning and they end up gaining weight? Or does it, does it kind of move in tandem where, yeah, the amount of calories they're burnt, they burn the extra calories they're burning, kind of matches up with a, a a correlating amount of hunger such that they actually maintain their weight just fine. And I, from my under, you know, the reason this popped into my head is I didn't gain or lose one pound adding a ton of, to me, a ton of cardio from, from nothing to what I now feel like is a good amount of cardio. I didn't, and I am not tracking. I'm not, I'm eating based on my hunger signals, what feels right. I know what I don't want it. I didn't want to lose strength. I didn't want to lose muscle. So I was like, you know, a little resistant to a deficit. But then part of the way through my uh, my training, I actually had, a chat, you know, plenty of chats with my coach, Alex, just looking to understand in the greater context of would weight loss help me right now be better? Like, would I perform better at this race if, if we spent, you know, the next eight weeks losing five to 10 pounds? Um, and so just exploring that, uh, basically, long story short, I being purely driven by how the additional hunger, which I, I felt some additional hunger, but I um, allowed myself to eat 
exactly as hungry as I felt. I didn't want to have any, you know, many days feeling unsatisfied or overfed or whatever. Anyway, long story short, I didn't gain any weight, but I also didn't lose any weight, adding in a ton of additional movement and you lost weight. And we had a bit of a back and forth where you were like, yeah, actually you felt that, um, yeah, you, you were having like almost a hard time eating up into the extra calories that you're burning. So maybe just talk about how you felt that that went for you. Yeah, I think my situation might be a little unique, or at least it's it's very much a contrast to yours. I was trying to eat as much food as I possibly could and then some. I was literally trying to go to bed stuffed to the guild every single night, and yet my body weight just kept plummeting. And I, I found that really interesting. And I, for, I for still context, Brad, could you just, yeah. just for context back up and just give me like a little what of the just so people understand the amount of cardio that we're talking about. So just give a little rundown of like kind of what you had begun implementing. What sort of cardio were you doing? How much? I was bike. Yeah, I was biking. Um, I was preparing for a 50 mile bike race, a gravel race with a 2,500 feet of climbing. So um, I was training a decent, uh, quite a quite a decent amount for it. Uh, in the last six to eight weeks leading up to the race, so you can call that August and September, I was averaging between eight and 11 hours a week on the bike. Um, and as far as lifting, I waited way too long to cut back on my lifting. I was still trying to do like a four to five times a week body part split type thing up until literally six to eight weeks out. And then I reached a point where I, I realized I could not continue lifting that much and continue doing the dose of cardio that I was doing. And so I cut back to two times a week, full body type thing for lifting. And that's where I think things really began to shift for my body weight. Cause I was holding on to like the low one nineties, high one eighties for most of my prep, you know, the six to eight months leading up to it. But in those last six to eight weeks, when I cut back on the lifting and really started ramping up the mileage and the time on the bike, that's where I just kind of lost control of my body weight. And I, I didn't even feel hungry. That's the, the oddest part. I mean, there's this whole energy compensation piece with Ponser and, and all of that. And there's other, you know, I've read other things and heard from people how cardio can actually mute hunger in some cases. Um, and so I think that must have been what was happening to me because I was really having to try really hard to eat. And I was eating a lot of food that wasn't even considered healthy by, you know, standard physique standards just to get the calories in. And obviously that, that still wasn't sufficient. Did you feel like you were eating? Like, did you, could you tell based on, so you're like, okay, so we know that it's possible well, based on just a wide spectrum, how people respond to cardio that you might've had a hunger blunting effect of doing all this cardio. But it, it's also the case that you were, were hungrier, just not as hungry as the extra calories that you were burning, which, so, so whether, which of those do you think it was? Were you actually eating less or you were eating more because you were hungrier. Just, man, when we talk about not being able to outwork a bad diet, and I hate that word bad, but that's just like how, how the saying goes. It's just, it's actually not true for very extreme athletes. Like for very extreme athletes, it's incredibly normal to have to force feed and to kind of intuitively, you know, be outworking your calories. So for you, did you feel like it was having a hunger blunting effect or it just was not meet, meeting the amount of extra calories you were burning? I think it was both. Honestly, it was, it was a little bit of both. I do think it was hunger blunting because I would finish my cardio sessions and I oftentimes didn't feel hungry in the next few hours afterwards. But then a few hours later, when the evening would hit, I would be ravenously hungry. And it was almost as if I just ran out of time and I just couldn't fit enough food in. So, yeah, that tracks. The truth is like, yeah, you can smash a ton of food in one meal. But the truth is, if you're trying to maximize calorie intake, you would do it with more frequent meals. And so if you catch yourself having like a four hour block of time during the day where you're like not hungry, yeah, it's possible you could smash a whole bunch of food and make up for, you know, eating less frequently. But the truth is that that's I could see how there'd be almost like this per meal cap. You know, there's a per, per meal cap based on like nutrition quality. I know you said that you kind of threw that to the wind a little bit, but like there is a thing where it's like, well, if you're committing to like eating mostly nutritious food, like we all kind of have a cap on how much we can eat of that stuff. And so when you end up like jacking up your calories out and you're trying to match that with calories in of like mostly nutritious food. Yeah, that can be difficult. And I certainly felt I just I guess I was just like really not. I don't know. I guess for me, I. I don't know. Maybe I just, um, yeah, I, 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 I think the only way to think about it, I'm trying to parse out all the reasons that it could be different, but 
Now, I probably wasn't doing as much. Uh, I think if you're saying eight to 11 hours on the bike, I probably not that, that that hours is, you know, again, by itself, you know, indicative of what you were doing or anything, but it's a good proxy. Um, yeah, I probably was doing half of that. Uh, and so there's there's that where it's like, yeah, man, you were just doing you were this elite, like elite level athlete who was actually outworking the nutrition side of things by just there was no other way you were going to be able to eat that much. Um, and I think that that's an interesting thing. I think that there's um, I think that what helps us both the, the take home for me. So who gives a shit? The take home for me in this instance is that both of us are have a high enough, whatever that is, high enough threshold of nutrition quality. Um, that even if we deviate and we move that along the spectrum, and incorporate some more like just yummy foods, higher calorie foods that it's still within reason that it, it, when we talk about like this set point stuff or like dual intervention model where like, you know, you combine your lifestyle with your genetics and it gives you a certain body weight. It feels like that, that from a, what, what I eat perspective, from a way I eat perspective, that it just wasn't going to lead to weight gain because just eating that much nutritious food just wasn't going to happen. Um, and so I, I, I really do come back to this like that is just like, I bet you if my baseline nutrition quality was like when people talk about, Hey, I started doing cardio, I started running a lot and I gained weight. I, I tend to think that that's probably somebody who started running and didn't eat that nutritious of a diet. And so when they were hungry, they added more of what they were already, they added more of the style of eating that they were already eating, which might lend itself more likely to like exponentially greater calorie intake. So I, it's, I know people have different responses to cardio, but I do know that uh, if I just exchanged, if I moved my nutrition quality by a certain percentage, I'm sure my calories could have went up and I could have gained weight. Uh, but there is a safeguarding effect to like eating relatively higher volume, relatively higher protein, relatively higher fiber, even if that needle moved for both of us in an attempt to kind of get, just make sure the calories did come in. But I do feel like people are like, oh, I started running and I gained weight. It's like totally possible that genetically you have, you know, a heightened hunger response to additional cardio. It's also possible that the your eating patterns, um, yeah, being a little bit more hungry for you has the potential to be worse from a calorie intake perspective because of the palatability of your diet on average. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I also wonder if there's a different level of energy compensation that each individual has. Um, I feel like Ponser, the way he describes it is everybody fits into this model of we can compensate, everyone will compensate up to 600 calories a day or whatever it is that the number is thrown out. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I feel like there has to be individual differences there. Yep, definitely. Definitely. You want to explain that really quick of the Ponser, not that you don't have to break down the whole study, but just uh, <laughs> the, the discussion of the of energy compensation, because I think that that's God, that's like, um, you know, you can be real nihilistic about that if you if you don't if you if you if you just hear what on face value, what that means. I feel like there are people on the Internet who are quite nihilistic about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess simply it's just the idea that up to a certain amount of caloric expenditure, our body will compensate through the processes of metabolic regulation that are occurring outside of the exercise. So you'll have lower neat, uh, you'll have lower uh, thermic effect of eating, uh, less like micro movements throughout the day, um, lower metabolic rate while you're sleeping. I mean, just a whole plethora of different things like that. I feel like the way I, that it, the way that it makes uh, what my brain automatically goes to is just to remind people that if you go on the treadmill and you are there for 45 minutes and you burn 400 calories, like actually burn 400 calories. Like, I don't care what the thing says. Let's just pretend like you actually burn 400 calories, that that's not necessarily adding 400 net calories to your total daily energy expenditure right. uh, because there will be subconscious compensation in the after hours where like you might've burned 400 calories in that hour. First of all, you know what's else? I'm not to, not to, not to break that down even more, but like a lot of people are like, oh, I burned 400 calories. That means my TDE is up by 400. That's not true by, by what we're talking about. Cause there will be some subconscious compensation afterwards, but like you also would have been burning a certain amount of calories that hour anyway, yeah. which I think people miss. So like if you spend an hour on the treadmill and you burn 400 calories, if you had been doing the dishes and taking your dog for a while, or even if you were fucking sitting on the couch, you might've burned 180 calories. So we're yeah. already talking about like a net increase of 220 calories where you already mistook that for a net increase of 400. Now it's only a net increase of 220. Yeah. Plus there's going to be some compensatory subconscious stuff that you can't do anything about in terms of down regulation. And so, yeah, Energy compensation does not create, it's not a zero sum game. 
where like, if you do that 400 calories on the treadmill that like you'll compensate to the point where cardio is not beneficial, that's not true. Um, but it just is the case that we just need to temper our, our understanding of like, even if you were burning 400, like that number 400 is, is skewing, you know, your understanding of like what you could increase your calorie intake by. Yeah. I, if you look at your fitness apps, I know Apple does this and I'm sure the other ones do, they separate out what your active calories were and your total calories. So if I do a cardio session, it will say total calories, 400 active calories, 260 or whatever that is. So that kind of accounts for what you're saying. Interesting. Um, and That's then cool. the other thing, the other thing is that, uh, from my understanding is that we compensate much more when we're in a caloric deficit and we compensate much less when we're not in a caloric deficit. And so given that I was in a caloric deficit, you'd think I'd be compensating more. And yet it, it seems like I was just doing so much cardio that I exceeded whatever compensatory mechanisms exist. So. Well, it's good. It's um, good to know guess, that though. Yeah. It's, it's good to note yeah, that you, yeah, that you exceeded future, it. Yeah. Well, just because I think it, I think there are people who are of, of of the opinion that it is a zero sum game and that, you know, you know, do adding extra cardio or moving more is irrelevant because of this compensatory stuff. And for you to witness manual override, so to speak, like uh, is at least just a reminder of like that. That's not actually how that works. Like movement is helpful. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. One hundred percent. But I like at least what I try to relate to clients and stuff is the movement that we do is it's got to be more with the pursuit of health and less with the pursuit of burning calories and the the burning of the calories is the side effect but the pursuit of health is is why we move so i think that's yeah. important um yeah. how how have you felt you know it's been all about a month since your race given that you didn't lose any weight has your weight remained stable the last month and are you feeling stronger in the gym given that your cardio has cut back or has it cut back at all yeah, I got sick. And so there's definitely a, a wrench thrown in there. I went home for the holidays and just like just recently recovered. Body weight's exactly the same. Um, I weighed in the day before the race at like 191, which is a, a smidge, you know, anywhere between 190 to 195 is what I would consider where I've been. And so that technically is on the low end of that. Um, I'm by 193 this morning. So if by all accounts, the same. Um, how is my strength in the gym felt? I, I there was just that I'm not gonna lie. There was a day. I have it in my in my spreadsheet. There was a day where I like looked at my spreadsheet and I had incline presses for like 85, 80, maybe it was 80s for like a set of seven or something. Um, and I picked up the 80s and I did a set of three. And I was like, <laughs> I, that's it. I was like, that's it. I, I I looked at that 80s. I was like, nah, I, I literally was like, that must have been a mistake. I was like, let me rest another couple minutes. Next set, got three. And I just was like, whoa. And it, it hadn't, nothing else had fallen off a cliff. Um, everything else was like, normal just like my normal strength on stuff ballpark of what i've always done um and that pressing strength just went off a fucking cliff and it's it's back up on the rise you know i had to go down to like 665 and 65s which uh whatever just like i don't care about the weight in absolute but that is a relative decrease that was like large um and i actually hadn't lost a lot of weight which you i, I had lost some weight i lost some weight um but it it felt it felt like a lot relative. It felt like my strength decrease on the press was, was a lot relative to the weight that I lost. Um, but I also don't really give a shit. You know, it's not, it's like mostly an, an interest thing about how that happens, but it's back on the rise. My body weight's the same. Uh, cardio right now will go back to a normal amount of fatigue and, and stimulus. Uh, we're going to start tra training for 5k. Um, and 5k is so this is so interesting. I, um, I think like, you know, when people are like, Oh, I want to do an event. Right. And it's like classic, like half marathon, marathon. Those are the things people do. Like nobody, nobody says I want to do an event and they're feeling all ambitious. <laughs> and they say, I want to train for a 5k, but I'll tell you right now, I'd rather train for a half marathon any day. The half marathon will be less painful than the 5k will be 5k. Oh, sure. 5k is done. And you know, this you, you or you like, you understand what I'm saying. 5k is done the entire time at, or slightly above threshold. And so like, for those of you who just like don't need to worry about what the word threshold means, what it means is like you're running at a pace that immediately sucks. That that kind of sucks right from the 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 whistle going. It's a pace that is you can do for you know thirty to sixty minutes, but but sucks after five. Um, and so a five k is run in perpetual pain uh, at or above or slightly above threshold for you know in that like thirty minute mark ish, you know, and so. The irony is with a with a half marathon. I mean, man, three quarters of that thing was not hard. Um, 
And, and most of it was run at a more, you know, the psychology is different. The actual pain is different. I mean, they're different challenges. I don't mean to make one out to be easy and the other one different, but I just laugh because like people are like, oh, you're going to do a 5K? You're not going to go do a marathon? I'm like, yeah, I'd actually rather be training for a marathon right now. Yeah, you and I, it's funny. We both are following the same curve because we both chose these two to three hour events for our first one. And then I hired Dr. Mike T. Nelson uh, to do my my coaching for me this off season as I get into rowing. And uh, so the last couple months since my race ended, I've been hammering what essentially is preparation for BO2 max on the rower and the, the pinnacle rowing uh, VO2 max workout is a 2K, 2,000 meters for time, which is somewhere between seven and eight minutes for most decent athletes. And that is, I mean, just insanely painful. It has all of the same characteristics that you're talking about with the 5K. Um, and the rower is just a mother effer. I mean, it is, it is just awful from the moment go. So yeah, I'm on the same page as you. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and the, again, just an interesting, just like, I don't know, there's, there's, I do this thing. We both do this thing. We're like, we go all in. And then it, I'm imagining like a, like a magnifying glass that like zooms all the way in and then zooms all the way out. And that's like how I've been handling. That's how I see myself looking back on this whole foray into cardio five years from now. We're like, it will come back to, I bet you, I bet you, I will come back and I'm already starting to do it. And, and, and Alex would agree. Coach would, you know, um, would, would nod along with me that like, there's, this is how I feel about lifting. We're like, if you ask me like, what's the, what is hypertrophy in one sentence? It's, it's doing a lot of hard sets over time. Um, and it's, and, and that's what it is. And there's plenty of, of flow charts underneath that scaffolding of good ideas of ways to optimize, but it's, it is a tissue accumulation of that comes from doing a lot of hard sets over many years without getting injured, um, eating a lot of food, sleeping hours, do a lot of hard sets. And like, yeah, we are, you know, there's arguments all day. We've, you and I have had a million podcasts on like how to optimize stuff. And with cardio, it, I bet you it does come back to like, Hey, like you, you got to do a lot of like pretty hard, pretty hard workouts. You know, you got to run, you got to run a lot, you know, you got to spend a lot of time on your feet. You got to put in the hours, you got to put in the miles. And there's, there's nuances of how to do that. And the reason I started this whole word vomit is like, there is on some level, like being good runner is being good runner. And like, and on some level, like the, the difference in training between a 5k and a 10k and a half marathon and a marathon and an ultra, like it's less different than what the mileage would, would dictate. Like the, if we, if we were like, oh, we're going to train for it. The reason I'm not training for a marathon is because Alex was like, yeah, we just would keep doing what you were doing. Like, you know, it's not, it's not like all of a sudden, oh, it's a double the distance. So we got to do this drastically different stuff. Whereas a 5K is now starting to become just very slightly different where you introduce mm -hmm. some some very close to, if not over threshold work, which we just, I would just recommend not doing if you were doing a much longer event. But um, anyway, that's been fun, but not, not in the way that you would suspect for a shorter distance of like, oh, it must not be so bad. Like it's worse. I'd rather train for half marathon. Yeah, 100%, man. The rowing stuff was so gnarly that I just finished this first seven week block of it. And I, I PR'd my row insanely. Like I couldn't believe I, I improved my my two K time by uh, eleven seconds, which set uh, from seven fourteen to seven oh three, which is doesn't sound like a huge number to the listeners, but I mean that is a, a massive increase to knock eleven seconds off that thing. And I'm just I, I I told coach I was like, hey, I need a break from this stuff. Like I need six to eight weeks to go back and doing like long distance cardio. Like give me the twenty minute to sixty minute like steady state stuff because this VO two max stuff is just mentally very taxing. Right tell, now. tell me about the rower as a modality. Tell me there's just like your relationship with it, decision making behind using using it. Yeah, I uh, started rowing in in CrossFit in 2009. That was when I kind of first got introduced to the rower. And I naturally was quite good at it, at least compared to the people around me. It was always kind of one of the things where like, it was obviously painful as hell, but when that would show up in a workout, I knew I had an advantage over the people around me. And so um, I knew I needed a modality of training to do in the off season, uh, off season being the winter. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I just, I couldn't imagine sitting on a bike indoors and doing these really long grueling workouts because I don't know what it is about biking, but it feels like 20 minutes on a bike is just not a sufficient amount of time. It, it feels like you need 45 plus minutes to really get like a quality bike session in. But if you get on the rower or if you go running 20 minutes is like a full, a full workout. I mean, you finish that and you are just 
gassed and crushed. And you're like, I couldn't imagine doing 45 minutes of this. Um, and so I bought a rower and, uh, you know, it's, it's been cool. Like, I, I think it's, it's just, uh, it's, I'm not sure how much that 11 seconds of improvement represents an improvement in conditioning or how much it represents an improvement in efficiency. And it's that, you know, inevitable gray area of, 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 of doubt, but regardless, um, it's been like a, a fun eight week experiment so far. And I, I look forward to continuing to kind of even get better at it. Hopefully break seven minutes in that 2k at some point. I feel like, uh, without having given this too much thought, I feel like when we're, when we're choosing modalities, it's for a number of reasons that we can add or subtract to the first one is that you enjoy. So I was like, all right, you must like enjoy, enjoy rowing or you might enjoy rowing because truthfully, that's probably the most important one. If someone's like, Hey, what, what, what should I get into? What should I buy for my home? What should I do for cardio? It's like, well, do you like something in particular? Then you should totally do that. Um, the other reason is if you're going to do, if you'd like to train for it, a specific race. So my question was like, you have any interest in doing a a, a rowing race? Uh. Um, and the third reason might be, as an alternate modality that you don't like that you're not training for, but it has a use in your training as a cross training modality. So for biking, cross training is slightly less necessary because there is no impact. And so there's no reason to, you you don't, that upside of, so for a runner, you would bike because you can get a training stimulus without the impact. And so that would be the merit of doing the bike or doing the elliptical or doing the rower or something like that, but you don't have that with biking. Um, And so are you, were you like, like you said, yeah, the rower might lend itself. Like you look at that bike and you're like, man, those long workouts on the bike, I don't, don't really want to do that. And so that rower might allow me to kind of lean into these shorter workouts. Uh, do you see yourself, A, keeping that in rotation even when you return back to biking? Because I know that you want to do another biking, similar distance, more incline. So more challenge, mm-hmm. but not on the distance side of things, more on the like on the strength component, which I bet plays directly into what you're good at. Um do you, where do you feel like that rower has a place in your life long-term? Yeah, I feel like it's probably something that I'm mostly going to use in the colder months. The The truth is, like, I I find the rower to be as monotonous as indoor biking. And I didn't know that that was going to be the case when I got the rower. Nice. But it's down in my basement, and I'm staring at a blank white wall. And it's just awful. Like, it... It would be way different if I were out on open water rowing. I think that I would absolutely love that. And it would be the equivalent of me getting out, getting out on my bike and being able to go climb mountains and see beauty in nature and, and all this stuff. But the the boredom and, and monotony of the rower is the exact same as what it would be to do the same thing on a bike indoors. It just It just requires less time. And so I think that's kind of where its value is for me. I've always felt like the rower was was worse because you can never let go with your hands and so you can never like you can never like fucking go on your phone or some shit like zone two on the rower is like just like i mean you, you can always like watch yeah, but you can always watch something and, and i'm not yeah, like yeah. fucking sitting on my phone the whole time either but i bet you i'd check it you know um but yeah that 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 to me you know what else i've, I've realized and and so um in the beginning of this i, I bought a treadmill i bought an air bike and i was so stoked to use both of them because whatever, like uh, to me the, at, the, at first, the logic of using the treadmill of like being able to really set your pace and like be more precise with your pacing was like, oh, of course, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be like like running outside trying to pace myself. First, I have no experience in doing that and doing that is daunting of like trying to run at a particular pace. Like obviously that's a skill you can acquire, but, and I didn't have it. Um, but even just logically, I was like, oh, it's just so much easier to like 6.3 and then run. You know, it was so much easier because I knew what I knew about the bike and what you know about the rower and the bike is that you're the one who is in charge of how hard you go. And the treadmill is like psychologically, it's nice because you're not in charge. It's it's like you are more passively doing what it's telling you to do. And so that I saw that as a big merit. Anyway, long story short, as the weather got colder and colder, uh, I got all that stuff in the summer and I was like very excited to train indoors 60 degrees. It's like nice inside. Um, And then it got cold out and I was like, oh, let me, let me, you know, use this as an opportunity to go outside. So I started doing my runs outside and I absolutely fell in love with being outside. I was like, oh, like, this is like, I mean, this is, I don't care about that pace. Like this is just killing multiple birds with one stone, just being outside and getting my workout, right? Much more enjoyable. But I've actually found very quickly that that novelty is now gone. We're like running in my fucking area in my little neighborhood is now boring shit. And so I talked to Alex. I was like, I'm probably like, I'm probably getting back onto the treadmill on the bike, but I want to take a workout 
to take me somewhere, you know, and, 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 and that as a microcosm for what I want to do over the long term, which is allow some of this cardio stuff to take me places, use it as an excuse to go run rim to rim or go run, you know, hundred K in, in fucking the Norwegian Alps, or, or I don't even know if there have Alps there, you know, I don't even think their Alps are there. The Alps are most certainly not there. Do not quote me on that. Um, <laughs> but like, but like I, 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 you live, you're out in Boulder and you guys have just like unbelievable landscape. Do you feel like that? It's like, I, you told me right away. You're like, I don't know how you're like, I think, I don't know when it was, but you were like, I don't know how you're doing that bike inside or something like that. And you were like, I just, I just get out there zone two and I'm in flow state and I'm in nature. And yeah, that's really, I told Alex, I was like, work. I don't care if it's not a flat. Cause once you give up a flat surface, you give up the precision of pacing. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm like, I'm going to do a trail run on Saturdays and let's just start to bake that in. And, and because I need this, I'm going to need one of these workouts to be like fun and naturey, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, I actually totally relate to the idea of my neighborhood being kind of boring at this point, or you've seen it a thousand times yeah. or whatever, because I live uh, about three-ish miles from the mountains. And so, like, if I want to go to the mountains, I have to account for, you know, six, seven miles there and back into my workout. And so oftentimes I don't go to the mountains and I just kind of have this route that I do. There's like three or four different routes that I do around my area. But also when you bike, you know, I need to be doing 15 to 20 miles at a time. It's not like I'm going to go out and do three miles and turn around and come home. So I have only a few select routes that take me 15 or 20 miles, but don't take me to the mountains. And so um, I've also kind of bored of those as well. And uh, that's part of why I want to do this, this next race with more vert climbing because that will give me a reason to go to the mountains and actually explore this kind of new terrain that I've been ignoring. Because when I do this 50 mile race with, you know, 2000 feet of climbing, 2000 feet of climbing over 50 miles is, is barely any climbing. If you actually extrapolate that out. Um, so I kind of need this push and this excuse to go say, Hey, there's a mountain over there, go climb that thing. And then once you get into the mountains, I mean, there's mountains upon mountains upon mountains, like the, the fucking continental divide is right there. Like you can go for hours into the mountains and never see the same thing. So I just needed to kind of get into that scene. What this was 50 miles, 2000, uh, 2000 vert. What's the next one going to be? This, you know, this was 2300 vert. Um, the next one I believe is going to be the rad dirt fest in, uh, Southern Colorado and it's 50 to 60 miles and about 5,000 feet of vert. So it's about oh, the same shit. distance, but double the amount of vert. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Is that, uh, what's your temperature on that? I mean, it's the end of September, so I have plenty of time to prepare for it. Um, my temperature is, I'm slightly anxious and scared about it, which I like, I, I find that to be the, the motivating piece behind it. Cause if I just went and did the same thing again, it would, it would have much less impetus for me to get out there and train. And I, what I'm really looking for is an excuse to get out on my bike and explore new terrain. And that's kind of what this race is going to do for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had a, I had dinner with a friend of mine in the city when I was home, uh, back in Jersey and he had just like, he'll never listen to this. Like one of my best friends and never listen to this though. But like he's, he's in shape, but he does, you know, he lifts, certainly lifts good shape, takes care of himself, good nutrition, but like not training as seriously as I am. Definitely not, doesn't do cardio as seriously. Pro probably does some inclined walking. And I, I know him, he's like, he'll do some walking and stuff, but like not, I'm over here. Like, you know, got a coach who's like, I believe I think the highest of, and, and I'm out here. I got a plan. And I know I suck at cardio. This is totally non sequitur, but I'm just going to say it because I've been thinking about it. And he was, we were talking about the race and he was like, oh, like I did a 5K like with, uh, you know, whatever, like with my family or whatever. And basically said that, you know, he was like talking about the race. He hadn't said what his time was. He was like, you know, and I'm just like imagining him just like rolling out of bed, like hungover doing, this is what I would imagine him doing. And just like popping into the 5K, like wiping his eyes and starting. Um, and the time he told me he got is like, it, is like basically the time that I'd be really hoping to get. And it pissed me off so much. I, I know that I genetically suck at this. I know that I have asthma. I know that I've never trained for it. I have the trifecta of don't deserve to be good at this. I have the trifecta. I feel like I'm blessed genetically in some ways. I feel very thankful, but, but I'm not blessed cardiovascularly at all. I'm just sucking endurance exercise at, at baseline. And it just, I, I literally the next day I had a call with Alex and I was like, Alex, I got the fucking fire. I was like, I'm, I, I'm like fired up about 
getting, you know how good I want to be at cardio. I want to be, I only want to be this good because I'm, I'm this good at lifting. I was like good at lifting. I'm this muscular. I'm just muscular enough that, you know, I, that I know it, that, you know, I train for it. I'm not, I'm not super jacked, but like, I certainly, if you saw my physique, you would be like, oh, he, he probably didn't come out of the womb that way. That's, that's my threshold for how good I want to be at cardio where someone's like, oh, like you, you, you train, you train for that. That's like, that's the only threshold that I want to hit. It's like just hitting, I want to be able to say that I could run, I don't know, not right now, but like, I don't know. If you run a 25 minute 5k, like, um, you know, to me, that's super fucking fast. Uh, and would, would indicate to me that that person's like pretty darn fit. Uh, and so that was like, I was like, dude, I, I need to be good enough where like my fucking hungover friend who doesn't do this shit can't tell me that he's exactly as fit as me. I can't, I can't be having that. Yeah, that's hilarious. I was going to say you must be somewhere between like 21 and 25 minutes as the goal, but no chance, uh, no chance, no chance between 25 and 30 minutes. Um, actually, I don't know that. I, you know what, to to be fair, I don't know. Alex is always more ambitious than I am. He's always like, oh, you're going to, you're going to be able to do this. And then, but so 3.3 miles, 20, 20, a 21 minute 5k is like a, you're running six and a half minute miles. There's just no way I'm doing that. Yeah. I was thinking three, three, three miles, not 3.2 or whatever it is, but, uh, but 25 minutes would be right around an eight minute pace. And so that's what I'm thinking is like, is realistic, you know, given you ran basically a 10 minute pace for, for the half marathon. So I think eight's reasonable goal. Yeah. That's, that's, that would be great. And if I don't do it in the first one, I certainly, I have the bug. I will have the bug until I get diminishing returns. This was the thing I wanted to talk to you about. I don't even think I sent you this in the notes is like this concept of how much easier it is to maintain adaptations than it is to gain them and how good for the brain and body it might be to kind of collect as many of these different skills right up into the point of diminishing returns and then put it on maintenance. We're like, and, and not just these exercise related adaptations, but definitely some of them athletic, you know, cardiovascular resistance training, you know, whatever. And I just feel like that's, I resonate with that a lot where I'm like, you know, it's not that when the going gets tough, I don't like, I'm thinking about one more thing I'm doing, which is like learning to speak Dutch. My family speak Dutch. I'm like semi-fluent, but I was like, you know what? I want to be fluent. And I'm, I've been doing it for the last year. I take a lesson every week. I talk with my dad only in Dutch and it's going great. But I told my dad, I'm like, I, I know in order for me to get to that next level where I'm like, you can't distinguish me from a native that it's going to take now a do more for less experience. And it's almost like I want to jump ship and go do something else where I can collect a lot of newbie gains, get rapidly better, add to my, like, whether it's intellect or, mm-hmm. or some other skill. And they'd be like, okay, cool. Like, I don't know if I have that drive in mo in many things to be like elite into that point of like a way, do more, get less sort of experience. You feel like that's, that's something that you resonate with. Yeah. I've actually talked about this a lot that I have now become this pursuer of things that I suck at because there's so much self-efficacy built in the first 80% of learning a new skill. And so like, man, saxophone, like I used to play saxophone when I was 15. I don't remember anything about playing saxophone because it's been 25 plus years. Um, I shot a bow and arrow a few times. I have this intense desire now to start I want to like buy a bow and arrow and a target and like put it in my backyard because I want to get newbie gains at bow and arrowing yeah. Um, yeah. at archery. So, uh, so, so yeah, there's a number of these things that I've been kind of tossing around in my head and you throw out Dutch and you throw out, uh, I don't remember what the other thing you said, but, um, but yeah, there, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. I mean, there's so many things where if you start at ground level zero, then every time you do it, you're getting this rapid positive feedback that provides positive reinforcement for yourself and self-efficacy. And I, I just love that. Yeah. Another one lately has been cooking. I guy got a grill. I'm in like full dad mode. And I was like, Oh, like, let me learn about grilling. Let me, let me spend, let me do an extra, I don't know, an extra 10 minutes per night on preparation. And, and for where I find that like, you know, my, my, mother-in-law is a wonderful, just fantastic cook, but I watch her and I'm like, yeah, you're just beyond where I feel like that's where I would start to not lose interest, but want to pick something else up where it's like, I want to get good enough that I feel like I can put in that little bit of extra work for that big return. And then I, it's not, again, I don't, I say lose interest as if I'm like apathetic, but like, I just don't have the passion to go into that diminished return thing. But I feel like, a, like you said, like almost like a serial a serial like newbie gainer where I want to like get these newbie gains at like a lot of different. And, and it could be, it could be just very simply down to like, uh, like what you said, where it feels good because you're getting rapidly better at something. And, um, I don't know, there's probably some like 
brain, you know, it's good for your brain to learn something new. And, and there's probably a lot of meat on the bone to like keep doing that. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely something. And I, I know that about my personality too. I just know that I'm like, I love getting pretty good at stuff, um, but lose a little bit of interest in a lot of things. Not all things there are certainly things I'm willing to go a little bit of an extra mile, but I, I, I really feel that I feel like I'm, I can identify right where that is with me, where I'm like, yeah, that, on the other side of that, that's kind of where I start to would rather go get newbie gains somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, I'm well into diminishing returns in biking. And so like, that's for me, it's, it's almost become frustrating because I go out and I bike now in the off season, whenever it's nice in Boulder, we have these random days where it was 60 and sunny in January or whatever. And I'll go out and bike and I'll do courses that I, I did in August and September when my mileage is way up there and my times are worse. My heart rate is higher. And I just come home and I like look at my stats and I immediately get like this sense of depression. Um, and then I realized that, hey, I'm not training for this, like blah, 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 you know, it's all good. Um, I'm doing it for health. I'm not doing it for for these other reasons, whatever, you know, justification I use. But but I get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, the diminishing returns thing. At some point, though, like once you reach the level of diminishing returns, there is a sense of uh, reward that you get just from continuing to to show up and do the work. And I mean, you and I both experienced that with hypertrophy. Like we are very much into diminishing returns of hypertrophy, but that doesn't mean we stop doing it. We're still showing up and doing the work and we're getting rewarded for continuing to pursue something where the results are extremely trivial. Yeah. yeah, And I'm certainly on maintenance with, with the, the hypertrophy, which I'm not saying will be how my stance on things at all times. I know there will be a midlife dad moment where I'm like, I want to get jacked again, which I'm sure will happen at some (laughs) point. Um, Let's let's do a soft pivot. And I want to talk about a topic that I just feel like every person who's listening, who lifts kind of understands what we're talking about and maybe hasn't been able to articulate it like we will right now. And that's this idea of and I'm going to use the RDL as an example, but maybe it's like a proxy for just all compound lifts that have a lot of you know movement to different joints and require uh, that are quite unstable compared to like machine their machine counterparts. We'll set you the RDL and this idea of trying to pinpoint. So when we talk about an RDL, what do we want with an RDL? We want to, you know, on a hinge at the hip and we want to maximize hip flexion. We want to do that with a neutral spine uh, and then a a relative knee bend that kind of reflects what we're trying to get out of it. Hamstrings versus glutes uh, or a mix of both, whatever. Um, But that neutral spine piece is remains and neutral is it's a range, you know, you know how many times I look at hundreds of form videos. We do an RDL in almost every cycle. You do Paragon. We look at, we're looking at hundreds and thousands of RDLs and there's a wide range of acceptable techniques. And I have seen with my one-on-ones, which I'm looking at more carefully week to week, month to month over years, where like in the pursuit of progression, they will add load to the bar. And at some point that comes at the detriment of technique. But when is that detriment of technique no longer worth it? Do you do you have a way that you think about this? Of like, when have I made subconscious adjustments to tech to my technique such that I've gone too far and and I'll, I'll shut up after this, but I've seen you RDL. And I, I told my client this the other day, I was like, I, my friend, Brian RDLs, you know, he could RDL like 360 or some shit. And then the following week, RDLs 225 and we'll articulate that he's getting a baller stimulus with both of them. So one kind of talk me through whether or not that's the actual scenario and, and maybe how is that possible? And how are you, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and yeah, I've experienced both of those things. You you are accurate. Uh, so the first part of the question is, you know, when is it too much or when, you know, that the, that the form is changing? Because when I do 360 or I do 225, I don't think it looks different to the outside eye. Um, and that's the really tough part. So instead, uh, I'll address the 225 versus 360 in a second. But as far as say I'm just using 360 and then I go to 365 and then 370 and 375 or whatever it is, and we're progressing throughout the cycle. What I look at now on myself and on clients' videos is whether rep one looks the same as rep seven or the final rep or whatever that is. Because if the weight is too heavy, what we're going to see is that rep one, two, three, four, all probably pretty much look the same. And then there's a minor degradation of form from reps six, seven, eight, and it gets progressively worse or whatever. And so I'll freeze frame and screenshot uh, what that position looks like on the first rep 
and the last rep and I'll send that to the client and be like, this is the difference that we're seeing right now. So I don't really care where you fall in that spectrum of neutral spine. If it's slightly lordotic, like arched or, or slightly in posterior pelvic tilt, slight, slightly uh, inflection, whatever, slightly backgrounded. All of those are fine as long as the beginning looks the same as the end. Um, and so as I'm trying to progress from 360 up or whatever that is, that's what I find myself looking at. And if I reach a point where my final rep is starting to look different than my first rep, then that's the point where I will potentially, you know, back weight down, reassess, and then kind of work back up from there. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to actually progress beyond what I'm currently doing. I think my best ever RDL was 385 for six or something like that. I don't think I'm ever going to do 405 for six. Like I would have loved at some point to do that. I see Alberto Nunez doing that and his spine doesn't change. He's a savage and he weighs less than me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's the way I think about that. As far as why I go back and forth between 225 and what I get out of 225 or 245 or whatever it is when I drop back and forth. One thing I've really found for myself, extremely productive in programming RDLs is alternating between light weeks and heavy weeks. Um, I no longer have the central nervous system that can handle heavy, close to failure RDLs with 360 pounds in back-to-back -back weeks. Um, I feel like that's CNS. It's probably partially mental or psychological as well. Uh, but I really struggle with that. And what I've found is by alternating weeks and having one light week and one heavier week, it keeps me fresh enough that I can get more out of my heavy weeks, which I really believe are the ones that are driving the pop, the progress. Uh, the use of the light weeks for me is, you know, the, the form is different and that's, that's the crazy thing. Like it doesn't look different to the naked eye, but when I'm performing the rep, I can tell that I'm articulating my hips much more further back. I'm keeping my legs just a teeny bit straighter. I'm getting a much more pronounced stretch directly into the hamstrings um, when I'm using the lighter loads. And I get just the sore, whether I'm doing 360 for six or 225 for 10. So uh, um, that begs the question though, that, that begs the question. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, nor do I mean to pretend like this has an easy answer because it certainly does not. And I can give my thoughts out and afterwards as well. But like that begs the question of why do the 360 ever? You know, like why not be thinking, well, how how about I use the least amount of load to get the most stimulus, least less CNS fatigue, less mm -hmm. spinal axial loading, all this stuff. And and that is a that's a question where clients will be like, oh, all of a sudden I feel like I've, you know, it's happening slowly because I'm only adding you know, a couple pounds, a couple pounds a week and a, and a couple reps per cycle. But then all of a sudden it catches up to me and I'm like, oh, my RDL's up 50 pounds and now I'm not feeling anything at all. Um, and when I drop down 25 pounds, I get a better stimulus. Should I do that? And that's kind of begging the question of like, why would you do your heavy weeks if you could just get a, and, and, and kind of curtailing that is when you're doing your light weeks, are you doing more reps or are you same reps? Yeah, I'll do more reps. So like it would be like 225 to 245 for 10, or it would be like 360 for six or, or something along those lines, right? Um, and no, it's a really good question. I ask myself that question all the time because I get so much less CNS fatigue doing the 245 for 10 than I do doing the 360 for six. There's much lower risk of injury. And like you said, you know, I'm getting similar soreness between the two, which would uh, insinuate similar stimulus. Um, and so, yeah, I ask myself the same question all the time. And I think the answer that I come back to when you try to take ego out of it, because that's the easy answer, um, is just that I am okay with making that sacrifice because I think that the, the overall load on, it's going to be different parts of the body, right? So I feel like when I'm RDLing 245, I'm doing it specifically for my hamstrings. When I RDL 360, even though it doesn't look significantly different, I'm getting much more um, midline bracing. So I'm getting a lot more of that kind of strength through the midline, the spinal erectors, things like that. I'm getting a lot more glutes as well. I feel a lot more glutes when I'm using the heavier load, probably because there's a teeny bit of unnoticeable knee bend that's happening as well. And so I, I just love the contrast between those two. And uh, and that that's my answer, honestly. I feel like it It also might be the case that in order to figure this question out, like, like how did you get to 360 in the first place? How did you get there? You got there by pursuing progression and pushing yourself to do more and to do more and to do more and to do more. And 
that is a, I was going to say skill or mindset. Um, that is a good thing. And so even if you were to decide that 225 is better, I, you still can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and the, and the baby being the pursuit that got you to 360 in the first place. So what I'm trying to say is like, I'll have clients that are like work their way up to 200. They're super proud. They hit their 200 RDL for the first time, but they're like, yeah, it doesn't feel as good as when I was doing 175. And, I, and I'm starting to kind of have this kind of have this thing where it's like, you know, maybe an RDL, maybe some of these compound lifts where you have such an opportunity for compensatory changes to technique, to bring in other muscle groups, to, to change technique within a set, within week to week, is that maybe it's like a five step forward, three step back sort of thing. Where like, I have, I worked my way up to like 275 for a set of eight, that's like my PR. And I right now went down to 200 pounds uh, after, I after like really putting RDLs on maintenance, I'm gonna bring them back up into a, an amount of volume that I suspect I'll be able to progress from. Um, retooled my technique a little bit, gonna do a plate plate touching the ground range of motion because I know I can. Um, and re regardless, that, that's a variable that that is, it's an unfair comparison now because I am changing my, I am increasing my range of motion, but regardless of that, I do feel like there's room to view it that way, to accept that that isn't necessarily how it will go for bicep curls. Um, you probably won't have to do five steps forward, three steps back, because in, in your five steps forward, you probably haven't changed technique, even subtly, even, even, even subconsciously, even in a non a way you can't see on video. Um, it's probably, that probably has not happened. And so your, your, your actual gains are your gains or as close to real gains as possible. They're not, they're not technique adjustments. So with RDL, I feel like it's okay to really push yourself to do more, to do more, to do more, to do more. Because that I think is what most people are lacking. Most people are not trying to progress. The downside of becoming a, and this is what I've done to people is I've turned them into a progression monster. Um, my group program, my one-on-ones, they are progression monsters. And I love that because they came to me program hopping, making it up, not really even tracking anything. And now they're dialed in. But the downside of that is the occasional trade of I'm gonna progress at the cost of technique, we do that for five weeks. Maybe we have to bring the weight back 20 pounds and work back up. But I'm, I want to just open the door to be okay with that. You might say, let's say you weren't doing your heavy and light weeks. You might have a day where you do that 360 and you're like, man, stimulus just feels either not good quality or not good ratio to how hard this feels. And you might say, all right, I'm going to start my next cycle at 320. And maybe I finish the next five cycles, my next macro cycle at 380. And then I start my next macro cycle at 340. And there, I feel like there's something about the RDL that that makes sense to me where um, it's it's you almost like, because I'm looking at a, like, because neutral spine, neutral spine is a range, it's almost like working within that range of neutrality where like you probably end your macro cycle with like just teetering on some, some flexion. And then you dial it back and you're like, bang, locked in, little anterior pelvic tilt, little extension, just nice and neutral. Um, yeah. Anyway, whatever. That was a lot of word vomit, but that that's where I've been with some clients who have been really turned into progression monsters, which is great. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that there's, there's total viability in that approach. Another uh, thing that I'm using in my upcoming cycle uh, that's starting on my program in mid-January is I'm doing one heavy set of RDL where it's for five to eight reps and I'm just going to pursue load and progression kind of like you talk about. And then I'm doing a stiff-legged deadlift deficit but I'm doing I it as that. part of a superset with a leg curl. And so I'm going to be able to get two of these hip hinges at long muscle lengths. One of them is heavy and maybe there's a little bit of flexion in the spine. I'm not really going to stress it too much because it's more about load progression. Uh, the second one is going to be way lighter because it's going to go leg curl directly to deficit stiff legged deadlift. Shit, I might be doing those stiff legged deadlifts at 135 because it's coming right after a leg curl. But the amount of stimulus that I'm going to be able to drive there is going to be insane. And so this is my first time kind of trying this approach with the one heavy set and then this much lighter kind of back off superset approach. And so we'll see how that goes. You're pre-exhausting the stiff leg? Yeah, I am. Yes. That's gnarly. That's going to be brutal. Um and yeah, that's going to be brutal. I, I've, I've, I've wrestled. So I was like, okay, you know, I, I was watching like some old videos of training. I was looking for an old, old form video and I was scrolled back into the archives and like saw some of my RDLs from the back of the day. And they were all plate to the floor. They were all plate touching the ground with, with a neutral, with a, with a technique that I was happy with a knee bend that still qualifies as an RDL. And I was like, oh, that's like, I can do that. Let me just, as I rekindle, like I, whatever I had to took like kind of a week off after the, the after the, 
Jesus fuck after the race. Uh, I was like, I was like, all right, let me use that like clean slate effect to like reset this technique here. Let me go plate to the floor. And I watched my technique on video and I probably had a, probably a smidge of flexion maybe. Um, but uh, I mean, my hands and glutes were absolutely torched in a way that I was like, oh yeah, long muscle lengths. Like, oh yeah, like uh, maybe a, a trade away of load in exchange for more range of motion was a good trade. And another, yeah, whatever. I, I'm not going to sit here and say that like flexion is categorically okay in all cases. But like, I was like, oh yeah, like the net effect of this technique was no lower back discomfort, shredded my glutes and hams. And, and I think I'd still be, if you were to look at neutral as a range, I it's still neutral. It just like, wasn't like a perfect mm -hmm. lumbar extension that you can you know, visibly see, you know, in, in the lordotic spine. Um, and so, yeah, that was, you're talking about deficit and I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, I, I probably have room for some of that too. Um, and I think that that's also part of this like five step forward. I think one of the big things that can happen when you take your step back is reestablishing that range of motion. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome that you noticed the, the increase in stimulus to the hams and glutes with the just slight increased range of motion. Cause I felt the same. I mean, I did a couple sets of that deficit stiff legged deadlift just to try it out, you know, the other day. And I didn't even go above 225. It wasn't as a superset. It was just doing it. And yeah, I did two sets at 225 and one at 135 and I was sore for like four days. So, you what know, you introduce your, those, your deficit. I'm going down until I get to about an inch or less than an inch above my toe laces, my, my shoelaces. Gotcha. 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 So that, whatever that, that you're using probably like what, like four inches or so of a deficit. You're I mean, I was actually plates? standing on, I was standing on something that was like eight or nine inches, but it, it. I didn't need all, I didn't need all that distance. Cause I'm only yep. going down to my laces. Yep. 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 I'll have to, I'll have to check back in and see. I mean, just, uh, I would love to see that technique. Um, I've always just been like, I just watch like a lot of people, I don't know, whatever. I guess I'm on a, I guess I go through phases of being stickler, a, cer a, st a certain amount of a stickler with certain portions of technique where I'm like, I, I just don't, I, my group is mostly women. I bet Paragon is just a higher percentage women. And I don't mean to make a huge generalization, but women tend to have shallower hip sockets and and an ability to to go into slightly deeper hip flexion with a neutral spine, blah, 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 go deeper in an RDL by all accounts. And I'm just like, there's no way I can get to the floor. And some of you guys can't. And the problem is, you know, it's like, there's an ego attached to like, I want to do more weight, which I love. Again, we turn people into progression monsters, which is awesome. Focus on strength, you know, enjoying getting stronger, enjoying putting more weight on the bar. And like, I find myself like every like five cycles going on a tirade on my train heroic app of like, take off weight, go deeper, take off weight, go deeper, which do you find yourself doing that in Paragon sometimes? You know, we actually kind of went the other way. And for a while we were getting people to go less deep because we felt like people were going too deep. Uh, there was like this natural inclination a year or two ago where everyone was thinking they needed to go to the floor beyond all the time. Like we had people constantly being like, well, I can get the plates to the floor. Should I stand on a riser? And our response was always like, no, just keep focusing on hips go back. And when the hips stop going back, that's the end of your range of motion. Right. And so we kind of compensated with the, the opposite approach, but now uh, as I'm bringing in back in the, the deficit SLDL for my own programming, I'm uh, potentially going to consider bringing that in for the group programming as well. But it's something I want to make sure that I test out and, and approve on my own, make sure that I can get through a cycle without, you know, throwing my low back out or something like that before I start kind of having it uh, passed down to the group. Cool. Yeah. That, that is going to be diabolical. And I fear for hamstrings all across the Eastern seaboard here. All right. I'm going to be respectful of your time. We both have things to do. Uh, we both just signed up for uh hypertrophy camp, right? In March. Yeah, buddy. I'm excited. We get to hang out and uh, learn from, from cast. So yeah. 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 I'm pumped. Uh, I don't know what they did last time. It looked like it was a, it was a good time. I told Cody that I, I even said, I was like, guys, I was like, it was the week after I, I was there is that they were going to do it. And I, I couldn't go. I had my, my race or something. I don't even remember. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I'm glad they're doing it again. That'll be fun. If you're out there listening, you want to come hang get a good pump and uh, yeah, get fucking freezing, but it is what it is. Yeah. I don't know. Actually we're at, we have like a nationwide heat wave. Like who are we kidding? Like it, it's nice out there. No, like, and you also have like polar heat. It's like hot and cold every other day. Yeah, we are in currently it's 33 and cloudy, but for the last week it was in the high fifties and sunny every day. And you know, out here with the, how close we are to the sun and stuff, high fifties and sunny is like 70 anywhere else. Uh, March is a really 
uh tough month here you get we actually get the most snow in march that we do in any month it's usually snows four times in march Jesus um but between those days of snow are 60 and sunny so it's anybody's guess what's going to happen on march 16th and 17th yeah yeah we'll flip a coin all right man appreciate your time we'll, we'll chat soon thanks for hopping on for sure thanks for tuning in to this episode of where optimal meets practical If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.